my advice would be that if you are pregnant or thinking about being pregnant, that you start educating yourself around the laws. If you're a drug user, especially, start educating yourself. I don't see them writing laws or, or like the Supreme Court getting involved with men getting snipped basically so that they can't have children anymore, right? Like all of these things are being imposed on women. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Imagine a future where abortion drugs like mifepristone or misoprostol are trafficked just like fentanyl or methamphetamine, or birth control is sold on the street corner like crack cocaine. It's really not that distant of a reality if it's not happening already, thanks to draconian laws that surveil the reproductive systems of millions of Americans. The drug war is deeply intertwined with reproductive rights. It's not always obvious to some people, especially certain cis white males, but at Narcotica, we will emphasize over and over again that bodily autonomy, the core of harm reduction and progressive drug policy, includes abortion access and reproductive sovereignty as much as it includes the human right to freely use whichever chemicals you prefer. America was already descending into a dystopian nightmare, but the process is accelerating ever since the Supreme Court gutted Roe v. Wade. In many states, a positive drug test while pregnant has turned into a justification for jailing people. In some places, this was already true before this year, but it's getting worse. In Oklahoma, for example, pregnant people who use medical cannabis have become the target of the state's attorney generals, according to recent reporting from the Marshall Project while Alabama is jailing pregnant marijuana users to, quote, protect fetuses, according to The Guardian. And that's just cannabis. With opioids or stimulants, the situation gets even more dark. But because these so-called hard drugs are viewed in a lesser light than weed or psychedelics, even some people in harm reduction are okay with stigmatizing drug use if the person is pregnant. Why is that? Why do even, quote, progressive drug policy folks change their tune as soon as a uterus enters the equation? And is there any hope for the future in a post-Roe world? I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. We've got a great show today. Our guest is Dinah Ortiz, a drug user activist who has fought for over 14 years for impacted communities. We discuss the surveillance state that was built around the drug war, how that is being weaponized against anyone with a uterus, but also the importance of narco-feminism and drug user organizing. But first, a little bit about Narcotica. We've been on the air for four years trying to cover drugs from a perspective of compassion, science, and evidence. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and all that. So if you can do the like and subscribe thing, please, it does help us out. You can visit our beautiful website, narcocast.com, to find all kinds of episodes on psychedelics, opioids, stimulants, Learn more about drugs like ketamine or abortion pills or how drug courts can create more harm than they address. Drugs are a big, big category, and they let us talk about all kinds of other aspects of social justice, from sex worker rights to the need for universal health care. We have a lot more to cover and no intention of stopping this show anytime soon, but your help is what keeps us going. If you want to join about 70 other people who make Narcotica possible, just go to patreon.com slash narcotica. Patrons can request free stickers, which will be personally mailed to you. We also have a PayPal, if that's easiest. Just send your donation to narcoticapod at gmail.com. At Narcotica, we have bills to pay, just like everyone else. Everything is getting more expensive, I guess because there's a recession or something. I don't really know. I don't pay attention to the stock market as much. 
Uh, but it's very humbling that folks care enough about this little podcast that just wants to see some goddamn common fucking sense applied to drug policy. So thank you so much for your support. We're also excited to announce that Narcotica is going to start giving back. We are a messaging service, and that's important, but we want to support the folks doing actual on-the-ground work as well. So, 10% of our monthly income will now go to support the Urban Survivors Union, a grassroots coalition dedicated to ensuring respect, dignity, and social justice for our communities. We love the work that USU is doing and are happy to sponsor them, so anything you give to us, a little bit will go to them. You can learn more about USU at druguservoice.org. Thanks for listening. That's all the technical stuff. Now on to the show. Our guest today is Dinah Ortiz, an Afro-Latinx drug user activist who has fought for over 14 years for impacted communities. After her role as supervisor at the Bronx Defenders Family Defense Practice, Dinah began doing consultant work as a drug user organizer and activist who has shared her story of parenting during past chaotic substance use and is a fierce advocate for parents in the child regulation system currently the co-chair on the North Carolina Survivors Union Board of Directors and leadership team of the Urban Survivors Union. Dinah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, let's start with a little bit about your story, uh, if, if, you, if you feel comfortable sharing it. Um, you know, I don't know that much about you, actually. And, um, you know, but I, I do know that you are sort of this active voice uh, for the rights of drug users um, but tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um, you know, and I definitely don't mind. I, you know, it's my story. I've always been, you know, transparent about my story, so I absolutely do not mind telling it. Um, basically, I, um, I, I lost my mother when I was 13 years old. She passed away from cancer, and I did not have a good relationship with my father. Um, so, although you know, I was in the home with him at the time, I really like was kind of raising myself. And um, I started using, uh, when I was 16, I started like using socially. And basically, you know, just like from here and there, every other weekend or whatever, you know, I, I always worked, always kept a job. Um, you know, when I turned 18, I had my first kid, my first son, and um, I, you know, wasn't using at the time. I didn't use at all or whatever. Um, then like right, like right after my second son, I started to use again, um, just socially or whatever. Um, then I had my third son. And then, so like, it was like sporadic use in between or whatever. Um, and that is when I, when I had my third son, um, I was actually, uh, with my husband or my soon to be husband at the time. And he was using heroin and I had never used heroin before. And so, um, also we were, we were living in Florida and we moved from Florida to come to New York which I'm originally from and we were in the shelter. And so I started using heroin also. And basically that triggered um, a, a CPS call, a child service call. Um, and that is like the, like the beginning of like my life spiraling down as far as like uh, structural systems. And um, I started, you know, when I was using heroin, I was using it like I got up to using, I think at the max I was using a bundle a day, which is like 10 bags a day. Um, and I was, I was, I struggled with my own use because, you know, I wasn't content with where I was. Also, I was in, you know, a loveless marriage, like a lot of things going on. So I didn't, so I, I you know, got on methadone or whatever. Um, then I had my third child. Uh, I mean, my fourth child, sorry, uh, which was my daughter. And at that time, I had I was on methadone 
and um, because I was using and I hadn't, I was, I was not educated at all. So I was to- told that I was, my daughter was going to die. That I was going to kill my daughter, blah, 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 blah. I kept using. And so like one of my uh, street friends told me to get on methadone. So I did. Um, when I went to the uh, doctor, I was like maybe six or seven months already. Cause I was afraid to go to the doctor. Um, and I have been on methadone for a while. And so I shared, so I shared with this man, uh, this white man, clear, crystal clear blue eyes. He must've been like 70 years old. I'll never forget him. Um, proudly I shared with him that I had, you know, stopped using heroin and that I, I went to methadone and he screamed like at the top of his lungs that I was um, basically substituting one drug for another and that I was going to kill my, I was willingly killing my baby and that he refused to treat me and like literally just walked out of me. Wow. Yeah. And so I walked out of the office. Everybody in the lobby, in the lobby was like staring at me. Everybody heard, I'm sure. And I was mortified. So I basically like stopped using the methadone too. I stopped taking methadone. Um, and I would, ju- I just started using so I wouldn't be sick and, you know, eventually gave birth. I had a C-section and I had uh, benzos, you know, residue from heroin in my system, uh, you know, methadone, all kinds of stuff in my system. So ultimately what happened with that was that my daughter um, was adopted by my brother and his wife. Um, not willingly, actually, like I was forced, I was put in a position where like I, I had no choice. And it was like, you know, they basically, uh, the CPS convinced my brother and his wife that like, I would not be able to raise her, that she was better off with them, what have you. And then, you know, a lot of things were taking place at the time. And so then that, when that happened, that was like, forget it, like, fuck it. You know, I took my kids, my, my sons, and I came to New York because we ended up in the streets. We were homeless, you know, all kinds of things. And so we just moved back to New York and I, you know, I just kept on using from there. That's, um, I'm really sorry that's happened to you. That's just terrible. Um, you know, especially you, you mentioned you didn't go to the doctor, uh, till you were like six or seven months along in your pregnancy because you were scared. And like, that is a legitimate fear. And it seems like those fears were confirmed by the way this white doctor was treating you. Um, yeah, I'm very sorry that happened to you because we've talked about this on the show before, but like the stigma against pregnant drug users is just it creates way more harm than it purports to solve or address. Um, and that's clearly been the, your case, like, you know, stigmatizing against you for using methadone you know, obviously created more risky drug use. And like, instead of like, I don't have to tell you this, but you know, but because of systemic racism, this is Mm -hmm. right. I mean, like this guy puts you at more risk and, and your baby. Yeah, no, definitely. he did. So, so bring us to today. What's going on with you now? So, um, you know, my daughter is, uh, about to be 20 years old. Um, actually they, they, I, I know I haven't spoken to, to her adoptive parents um, since I left Florida. And that was like 18 years ago. And um, so they never told her that she was adopted. And she only found out like maybe four years ago. And she, looked, she sought out to find me. And we've had a relationship ever since, thankfully. And um, I, my, my sons are great. You know, my older son is a sergeant in the army, lives in Hawaii. I'm actually going over there for a few months next month. Um, and my two younger sons, uh, live out here, both of them with their girlfriends. 
you know, and I live by myself with a roommate and I am doing activism work. I was working um, at a small nonprofit organization at, at the beginning of like me learning about movements because in Florida, there was no such thing as movements out there or, or you know, unions, you know, supporting us or anything. Um, so I started out in the formerly incarcerated uh, movement, you know, for the mass incarceration movement and um, started working at a small uh, grassroots uh, organization. I was there for two years. Um, and from there, I went on to work at that uh, public defense office and kind of worked my way up. And what I realized um, working there was that um, all of the parents that I was representing were the majority of them were there for drug use. Like, Literally, those were the only allegations, drug use, not that there was harm to the child, not that the children were being abused, but they, the parents were using substances. Um, and also that every day, you know, every day I walked into the court, the, the benches would be full with black and brown people. <laughs> I think I had one white client throughout the entire time that I was working doing, you know, doing uh, direct services. So, you know, there were a lot of things that were like just kind of clicking for me. Um, also, in between, like before Bronx Defenders and and like while I was still at the other organization, I did a, a internship at National Advocates for Pregnant Women um, with Lynn Paltrow. And I learned so much from her just about like the advocacy towards, you know, for people who use for mothers who use drugs and for pregnant mothers who use drugs. Yeah, yeah. Lynn Paltrow is amazing. Um, we've had her on the show before, and I have learned so much from her as well. She is like, she's a mentor to me, honestly. Like, I learned so much from her and from another woman, Emma Ketteringham, that works at the Bronx Defenders. Like, literally, they were the ones that, because I was like, I was of the mind frame that, oh, you know, that the, the child regulation system came into my life and they saved me. Or because also, you know, I was in prison too for two years when I was in Florida. And so like that saved me, right? Like I was of that mindset. And so, you know, it was these two white women that kind of like, nope, you know, it didn't save you. It actually like, you know, traumatized you and your kids, you know? And, and, and so it was, yeah, it was just amazing. Like moving on from there. And when just, when I noticed, you know, all of the things that I learned, you know, at the, at the, you know, representing the clients, I was like, this is wrong. Like, this is absolutely wrong. And I need to speak about it. I need to tell my story so that other mothers feel comfortable telling theirs. And so I started, um, I had I had been speaking publicly back from the, in the other organization, but not as transparent as I started to do. And I just started talking about my story and, 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 throughout the years and, and, you know, ended up doing it for like the, the entire 10 years that I was there. Wow. That is quite a journey. And I'm glad you feel comfortable sharing your story with people so that others can relate to it. A lot of what you've gone through is, is fucking horrific. That's, that's really just the only the way to describe it. But it seems like as bad as things are for a lot of pregnant people who use drugs or mothers that use drugs, it's about to get worse. And yes, I, I that's why I kind of wanted to bring you on to talk today about drug use in a post Roe world. Going back a couple months, Roe v. Wade was overturned. Planned Parenthood versus Casey was overturned. What was your initial reaction to that? It was like I got hit by a bus. 
right? Like I wasn't alive in the 60s and the 50s, but I felt like that was that was the era that we were living in. Um, like we, you know, I, I had some meetings going on uh, that Friday and like most of them I couldn't attend. Uh, one of them, you know, was kind of like open room just for us to kind of talk and, and vent. And it was like, there were no words. Like I couldn't formulate words to say how horrific and how how harmful that was, you know? So yeah, I mean, still you hear me now, like still to this day, it, it just like, like I'm still in shock. I know, I know. It still feels unreal. Um, and, you know, I'm in California. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I get this sense from a lot of people out here that there's this sort of false sense of security. Um, like California is moving towards enshrining abortion rights into the state constitution if they haven't done that already. You know, they're just trying to make it really strong here for abortion access. But I'm not really reassured by that. I really don't feel like that. I feel like I'm glad that my state's doing that. I really am. I'm glad that for once Governor Newsom is doing something not neoliberal bullshit. But I don't think it's going to be enough protection. and, And there's a lot of risk a lot of hazards that could happen in the future. Um, but, you know, for for listeners, maybe let's unpack this a little bit. People that may not fully understand, but why do drug surveillance laws especially make it more dangerous right now to be a person with a uterus? You know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, pregnant mothers, specifically, you know, marginalized pregnant uh, women or pregnant people, um, are the most surveilled, right? Um, regard drugs or not, and then on top of that, when you add drugs to the equation, it's, it's like you're on, under a microscope, and so you are automatically seen as a bad mother, a, a bad person. You are are triggered in the system, basically. Like, and you're lucky if you get to keep your child when your child is born all because you are a mother who uses drugs or a pregnant woman who uses drugs, people are going off of like junk science and not actual scientific facts, right? That like the most harmful thing for a fetus or, you know, when you're pregnant is actually um, alcohol and cigarettes and nicotine, right? And so, you know, not, not anything against alcohol, right? But like, those are the most harmful, not crack, not um, heroin, not methamphetamines, not any of that alcohol and nicotine and so you know because it's been embedded in us throughout the years with all these commercials and with all the you know say no to crack and and you know uh the reagan slogan that she put out you know and the oh this is your this this is your brain and this is your brain on drugs with a fried egg like all of that it's almost like we're robots and all of that was like little bits of information that they were like planting little seeds they were planting in us throughout the years right yeah and it's it's made it so that we are now at a place where we're creating policies that are completely against family reunification or family unity or or anything to do with like helping a family move forward or helping a mother move forward right yeah um it is completely true what you were saying, that you're put under a microscope. Um, there's so much scientific evidence to suggest that, you know, the worst thing you could do um, for an infant is to take it away from its mother. I mean, like, that's 
creating more trauma and hurting the development of that uh, way more than the drugs would. Then there becomes like this really weird Orwellian language that is used, like chemical endangerment of a child, which just, I mean, for some reason that thing makes me think of like gassing people in Syria or something like that. But like, this is real language that is applied to somebody who's pregnant or a mother that uses drugs. It's almost as if like you're no longer a human being after that. You become an object that's carrying this fetus that they only care about the fetus. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this, this kind of brings me to some of these news stories that have been coming up. Uh, some stuff was like in the Washington Post and uh, Alabama.com or something. Um, I'm just going to kind of read this because it's, it's just fucking horrific. But yeah. this woman, Ashley Banks, was arrested on uh, May 25th. She had a small amount of marijuana and a gun without a permit to carry, which I don't think is really relevant. But um, she would have normally been able to post bond and leave jail under her criminal trial. Mm-hmm. Um, but she admitted to smoking pot and she admitted to being pregnant. Ugh. So she couldn't leave jail unless she was able to enter drug rehab. But she wasn't able to get into the program. So she was just in jail for three months. Um, And she's just not like the only one. There's like all kinds of these cases that are happening where uh, pregnant women and new moms are being accused of exposing their fetuses to drugs, this whole chemical endangerment of a child. Um, They're held for weeks or months inside these detention centers because they can't afford uh, rehab, let alone these cash bail that is just so expensive. Yep. Um, yep. And it because like the moment of conception is being used as this like you the instant you're pregnant if you use drugs like now you're suddenly a child abuser now you suddenly deserve to be yeah. imprisoned for so long like this is just insanity yeah it's immediate neglect or abuse of your child of the fetus actually right what can people do about this because I mean this is just sort of really really scary to sort of be living in this world where it's getting where one day. You know, because you're smoking weed, like you can be thrown in jail for three months like that. It's just crazy. Yeah. The thing is that, like, you have to educate yourself, uh, you know, around the laws in your state, you know, because it's different in every state and in rural area. Like, you know, and I don't want anyone to take offense to this comment, but like in rural areas, like the poor white people are the black people of that, you know, of that city. Right. Like the way we get treated is how they get treated. And so it's like, you know, the constant surveillance and all that stuff is the same exact thing, right, with with poor white folks. And so they have to really depend on each other, community, you know, community support and and learn the laws in your state. Because if, if if you are at least aware of what can and cannot be done, right, like, then you know how you can advocate for yourself or seek out an advocate that can assist you, that knows about these systems, you know, that are in place. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Over here in New York, basically, they, the hospitals, uh, and I think they're still doing it, most of all, but like hospitals in poor areas are drug testing women, pregnant women, when they give birth, and not even like letting them know. Like they're, they're, you know, submitting these toxicologies and not even uh, making the parent, the mother aware, right? And so when we started to look at, and this was a few years back when I was still at at BXD, um, when we started to like look at the numbers, it was like horrific. Like the the numbers were so 
big and enormous when it came down to wh what mothers were being tested and which ones weren't. And that's not even a law. Like, it's not a law that you have to drug test uh, a pregnant woman. Well, not in New York State, that you have to drug test them. It's not a law that when they give birth, you have to drug test them. Yeah, they're just doing it because they want to. And let alone, they're not even advising that, that this is what they're doing. So, you know, they give you a bunch of documents to sign and then they slip that document in and you're just signing away because you're in labor and you're just about to give birth and you're in pain and all this stuff. And so you're, you're just signing just to get rid of this. And in those documents is a small, is one small letter document that says, and we will, you know, I agree to be taxed, you know, uh, drug tested basically. Yeah. And like, nobody knows about, like no parent thinks about that, right? Like nobody in pregnant thinks about that until it happens. And so my advice would be that if you are pregnant or thinking about being pregnant, that you start educating yourself around the laws. If you're a drug user, especially, start educating yourself around what supports you have around you that are um, harm reduction focused, you know, um, what the laws are based on a pregnant parent, pregnant mother using drugs, and really, really try to connect with as many, many support networks as possible that are, you know, like-minded. So I, only in New York, I know, um, I, I don't know many, like in other states. In Colorado, when I went out there, I met, it was crazy. It was one woman who was a parent advocate and would travel up to four hours to go and represent, you know, a parent. And she was only getting like a $50 stipend a week, but she was doing it because she was so passionate about it. But like a lot of states really don't have that type of advocate. Or if they do, the advocates are pro CPS, pro, you know, like stop using drugs, all this stuff, you know, you must remain abstinent. And so if they don't have that, I would suggest that maybe even thinking about getting with a few community members and maybe starting something up. I know it's easier said than done, but even if it's, you're doing it from home where you're just doing it, you know, a couple of days a week, starting out just so you can get known out there and, and make, you know, connections, then do that because not enough states have that available. And when they do, like over here, for example, ACS has their own parent advocates in their office, right? So when I would go with my client to meetings, they would offer her their parent advocate. Their parent advocate sits down after the meeting with them and shares everything that the client has, has you know, expressed to them, right? Is in ACS's office all day long. And the, all she does is make, you know, relation, form relationships and, and speak to them. So clearly she's not advocating for my client. She's advocating for ACS. So like you have to get someone and you have to find someone or even a friend. It could be a friend. It doesn't have to be a professional, a friend that knows, you know, knows the laws and knows the policies and knows about harm reduction and can come and advocate. Because if you do have a, an ACS case and you go to meetings, you have the right to bring anyone you want. And so you can have that person come with you and just advocate for you. That's good advice. Um, I kind of want to talk about um, how birth control and abortion drugs are sort of now entering uh, the underground market. I mean, I'm sure they always existed on the underground market before this, um, but it's becoming more of a thing. It's more prevalent because access is getting shut off. And now this is sort of a, I don't know. It's so it's so weird to think of like people selling abortion pills on the street corner. I mean, that's not exactly what's happening, I don't think, but 
Yeah, but it will be soon, though. <laughs> like, literally, it will be. Do you know what's happening in, in terms of this? And, like, how... I mean, what can people do? I mean, like, I would hate if, like, these drugs started becoming adulterated. Like, hopefully, they're mostly just being diverted from actual pharmacies or other countries that, you know, don't have their heads up their ass, like Poland or something like that. Um, so, so fortunately, in New York, we're not restricted right now, right? Like, we're not yet. Like, we, you know, the abortions are we're still able to, to get them. Um, but, you know... Uh, I know that in North Carolina, you know, where I am the co-chair of the board there of, of North Carolina Survivors Union, um, I know there it's more difficult, right? Like the, the abortion is no longer acceptable. And so like there you have to buy it in the street or you have, have to find connections, you know, to someone that, that has connections that can get it or have somebody send it to you from a different state. Um, but it, it's it's literally like the feeling of it is like, you are buying drugs, right? Like it's that kind of nostalgia of like, this is what I do when I'm buying drugs. Like I, like I'm being very secretive. I'm being, you know, like I don't want to get caught. Like all of these things you're doing to get stuff that should be available to you over the counter. Yes, it should be over the counter. I think it's worth emphasizing over and over again that abortion drugs are very, very safe. And there's no reason that you need to talk to a doctor or a pharmacist to get them. They should be right next to the Tylenol. Yes. And and, and so and they don't I don't see them writing laws or, or like the Supreme Court getting involved with men getting, you know, um, getting snipped basically so that they can't have children anymore. Right. Like all of these things are being imposed on women. But there is no type of prevention, you know, being put put in place for men. You know, they just completely like traumatized an entire era of of women. Um, probably like killed a lot of women. You know, and and the men just are going along as of nothing. You know, uh, just earlier today, I, I was uh, listening to a story about a woman that lives in Texas, and she's pregnant, or she was, she is pregnant, and the doctor basically told her that her baby would die, would suffocate once it was, the baby was born because of some type of disease, some rare disease. And because she can't get an abortion, what that means, the doctor told her, like, in, in any other time I would tell you that the best thing is to, to have an abortion, right? Because she's in Texas, she cannot get an abortion. So she has to carry her baby to term, give birth, and then watch her baby die within seconds. Yeah. I mean, that is just completely fucked up, horrific. Um terrible i just it's torturous yeah i mean i could use other words but it's, it's yeah exactly completely immoral um i can't believe i'm living through this sometimes you know like we knew this was going to happen too like this is not a surprise no exactly some people are surprised i mean a lot of white male politicians are like wow this is the law that happened and yeah, no. I, I can't believe this is what the fucking consequence is but people have been saying this is what will happen Yep. For years, we For knew years, this was coming. Been, yep, 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 exactly. And then, and then Trump happens, right? Not that it started with him, because it has been just like little by little, like you know, right, right. throughout the years, just kind, kind of like planting that seed and, and making sure that the Supreme uh, Court has the right players, right? Like that's what you know. They they were strategic. They were strategic because they've been planning this all along. Right. 
their their goal isn't to protect babies. I mean, no, not at all. Total bullshit. Not at but all. tell me what you think their goal is, because I, I mean, I think we both know Honestly, the answer. But... I think their goal has nothing to do with babies, or or I think their goal is power. They have the power to do this, right? They don't want to be, you know, um, they they claim that they are pro life, right? But but pro life stops after the baby turns five. And that's just an estimation, right? Like yeah, that, that yeah. stops then, right? Because they don't get involved if you have to feed the baby and you have no money and, or, you know, you close, they don't get involved then, right? They're not pro-life then. Right, So right. to me, it's all about the power that they, they can wield. It's not anything about family or, or caring about, you know, fetuses or anything about that. It is about the power that they can wield. Yeah, as George Carlin says, if you're pre-born, you're fine. If you're preschool, you're fucked. Yeah. Yes. Basically, exactly that. You know, one thing that I would tell, like the the the, the CPS workers and the foster care workers, when I was, you know, doing direct services, was when does at what age do you stop caring about the child? Because we're all children, right? We're all we all were born from from parents. So, like. I, I, I wanted to know, like, at what age do you stop caring about the child? I, I, when they become an adult, then what age? Because I've had represented children that have been in foster care their entire lives and then gotten pregnant and then became the adult that had an ACS case against them. Wow. Yeah, while still being in foster care. So I, I always, they never had a good answer for me though. And I'm just like, I, I need to know, like what age does that stop? When do you stop caring? Um, I think anybody that uh, claims to be quote pro-life, which is really just anti-abortion. I don't, I don't like euphemisms like pro-life or pro-choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're either pro-abortion or you're anti-abortion. That's yep. Yep. Everybody needs to be asked that question. At what, at what point do you stop caring? Because if you're not going to introduce uh social safety net measures, that protect people from age uh, one to 18, you know, like um, I, I totally agree with you, what you're saying um, that it is all about power. Um, and I think that's sort of how uh, reproductive rights and the drug war sort of intersect is that it, it's all about power. It's not about drugs. It's not about babies. Yeah. It's about controlling people. And yeah. the people that have written both laws, laws that govern reproductive rights and laws that govern drugs, it's explicit that this is why these laws were created. Um, well, of course, of course it is. I mean, look at, you know, the conversation between Nixon and, and his right hand, right? Like they plain out said it, you know, like it's a war on people. Yeah. And so I, I like, I, I know when I talk like this, I get like a little skeptical of myself and I'm like, you're just like believing in conspiracy theory, but it's like, it's fucking right there. Like anybody can go look at these interviews or yep. uh, it's so frustrating. And they say the quiet part out loud all the time. So this, this atmosphere of surveillance and policing and all this shit, like it's um, encouraging people to switch to things like home remedies for abortions, like penny royalty and mugwort, which these are not actually that safe. Like I, of course not. Like anything that is not like monitored, like you know, in a safe environment, is not safe. Like right, right. But I know that overconsumption of of these penny royalty and mugwort they can cause liver failure. I mean, this can literally kill people. 
because we're not allowing people to have access to the safer version, abortion drugs that are, you know, really fucking safe. I just can't emphasize that enough. It's people are trying these things that they read about on the internet or they see in a TikTok video and it's literally fucking harming them. So what what can we do about that? Like, I mean, we besides trying to get the information out that like, but some people don't have alternatives, so they're gonna they're gonna take whatever they have to. I mean, we're literally it's not hyperbole to say that we're back at the era of coat hangers and that kind of thing. As I was just thinking that, and honestly, it is the same as like why we have so many overdoses, right? Why we, why we have so many fatalities on overdoses because of the tainted supply that is out there right if if, if it was just decriminalized and legalized we would not have all of the 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 numbers that we have the the statistics that we have and that is what is happening with the birth control or is going to happen right with the birth control or i mean with the abortion pill little by little it's going to be tainted you're not going to know what you get they're going to start pressing them right because like like, like they do with Xanax and every other like pill on the streets, they're going to start pressing them because they're going to be so on demand that there's going to be money, the money market for it. And then by the time you know it, they, they don't know what they're taking. Right. And what we need to do and what we are so horrible at doing as a, as, as a country is fucking stand up and fight United. Right. Like we should be walking out. We should be not going to work. We should like all united, just like stop the fucking press. Right. And just take one day, two days. You know, I know everybody. we can't do a week because, you know, we're poor. Right. But like take one day and just everybody just like fucking walk, you know, go to Washington, D.C., walk in front of the fucking, you know, the White House. Just like, you know, take action. I seen this happen and I forget. I wish I would have I would have written down what country, but I seen this happen in another country a, a couple of months back. Right around the, you know, it was around the Roe versus Wade. I think they were trying to do the same thing. And it was like so many people that you couldn't see the end of the line that had just went in front of like their nation's capital or whatever. And and like they ended up not passing the law. Yeah. I, I think it's always good to remind people that they have this this amount of power i've been hoping for a general strike to you know pop off at any moment now i mean um not just for this but for climate change and for a dozen other social issues that people we could fix all this if we all kind of yep. banded together but it, yep it's uh it's a scary environment um yeah you know uh we don't want to be that person to, to, to speak up about it, right? We don't want to be that person to start the chaos or to start the fight, you know? Some of us will join after it's already been started, but we don't want to be the ones to do so because we don't know, well, who's going to join? Are there going to be any people? Am I going to be the only one? Like all of these fucking questions, right, that come up, all of these doubts that come up. And because we are, we think like that, nothing will happen. Nothing will change. The laws against women and women's body and their, their autonomy to their bodies are going to get stricter and stricter. Um, I think this is a good place to talk more about drug user organizing in general. Um, why is that important? I know that's sort of an obvious question, and we've talked about drug user organizing on this show quite a lot. I, I, I can't express how much it's important to do this, to be 
it's sort of a I always, you know, kind of think it's sort of a strange concept because it's not talked about uh, very seriously in a lot of areas. Um, but to stand up and say, I use drugs, I am a, I deserve the same level of human rights as everybody else, and I don't think that that should change anything. Like, fuck it, if I use meth or if I use heroin or crack or whatever... It's none of your fucking business. Yeah, I still deserve the same amount of respect and uh, autonomy. Mm-hmm. Which is all about autonomy, really. Like at the end of the day, it's about owning your body and what you can put in it. Mm-hmm. As Lynn Paltrow says, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's drugs or sperm, whatever you put in your body, you should be able mm-hmm. to regulate that. Yeah. Um, and so drug user organizing sort of serves as this tool for people who use drugs to come together and recognize each other and share that power to fight back against this bullshit. Yeah. Um, I, there's not, there are not enough words, complimentary words for me to say about drug user organizing. Like that literally has saved my life. Right. I told you that I left, you know, Florida, uh, uh, about 18 years ago and I never spoke to, uh, my daughter's adoptive parents again. Right. Um, I actually have five brothers and three, uh, two, three sisters. Um, one of them is dead. The other one we're not in touch with. I only speak to one sister and I don't speak to any of the, the, the men in my family. Right. Um, because I was the black sheep. I was the one that used drugs. I was the one that, you know, whatever. Right. Anyways, the drug user organizing movement has become my family. Right. Like. I'm part of the leadership team of uh, Urban Survivors Union, and I cannot tell you what where I would be had it not been for my colleagues there. Like they're my family. Like they're not my colleagues. They're my brothers. They're my sisters. Like, lit- like more than what the those blood people are to me. Like they are to me. Um, to be able to reach out to them when you need them, you know, to reach out for support. Um. Not only that, but just, but also like making, you know, networking and, and, and making, you know, connections and making, you know, getting projects to work on and, and, you know, being able to like make money off of these projects, like, like in every single way we support one another, you know, um, you know, we're working on right now um, in North Carolina Survivors Union, where I'm the co-chair of the board, we're working on a project called Narcofeminism and it's a woman's story, a drug user women's storytelling uh, project where it's about reproductive harm reduction. And we basically do like, we, we go on panels and we speak about it and it's, it's everything about, you know, being a pregnant or parenting uh, mother who uses drugs, you know, and, and it has, I've been on there for like four years on that project and it has been just so amazing because like, it is an outlet also to be able to like, say the things that you can't say to everyone about like your active drug use or your past drug use and, and being a parent. And it also, like, we also get to like go and speak about it. Right. And we get to share about it. And we do like anonymous bias stories where people write their stories and they don't have to put their names and we read them out loud. Like all of these things I've, I've been able to acquire while being part of the drug user unions. And I cannot, I would not trade that for the world. That's really great. Yeah, that's. Uh, I like to <laughs> always balance all the negative bullshit out with positive stuff. So, like, 
people are doing the work and are trying to fight this stuff. Like I know that there's a lot of despair and hopelessness right now and that's valid. That's it's, it's a plenty of good reasons to feel that way, but there's also a lot of good progress being made. Um, can you define what narco feminism is? I mean, it sort of seems self-evident what it is in the name, but like, how is it a little different from feminism in general? And what does that mean? Well, um, it's not really about feminism. It's about just like having the autonomy to be, you know, to parent your child and, and to put whatever substance in your body you want. Right. That's what it's about. Um, so the fem- narco feminism, you know, narco clearly like the drugs, um, but, but the feminism is not the actual feminism that you see, like, you know, uh, you know, doing actions and stuff. It's not that feminism. It's feminism as in like people who can give birth and parent children, right? Have the autonomy to use drugs or whatever substances they want. And there we are the voices for that community. And so that's, you know, basically we also kind of adopted that word from, I think it was a place in Amsterdam. Louise had adopted that because I, I came in, it was already started, but had adopted that that name from them and with permission, of course, because it's exactly, it, it fit exactly the work that she, we were they were doing at the time and that we're doing now. I think we were talking the other day um, and you mentioned that there's been uh, more female leadership in harm reduction lately. And that's good to see that it's a lot less straight white men uh, in positions of leadership, which of course, you're nothing against that. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it, harm reduction has not always been very representative um, and that's hopefully changing. And I, I think it really needs to, harm reduction needs to reflect the communities that are getting the most harm. I think that's, that makes just logical sense. Like if you want to reduce harm, ask these communities what they need. Um, but I guess, what are your thoughts on this? You know, like, is it moving in the right direction? Is it kind of stagnating or even maybe going back backwards? So as you notice, I, I don't call myself a harm reductionist. I call myself a drug user, human rights activist. Okay. That's what we call ourselves um, at the union. And, and, and it's purposeful because harm reduction has been whitewashed, basically. Right. And there's this hierarchy within it, within the harm reduction world, that is kind of like if you smoke cannabis, if you do cocaine, you know, socially or whatever, then you're accepted into the, to their world, right? But the minute it starts get going any harder than that, it's a wrap. Like, now you're marginalized within the harm reduction movement. And so... Uh, to me, what I've seen throughout the years is a, a huge hypocrisy, a huge hierarchy, and just like uh, stigmatizing manners towards our community, right? Like, you know, I, I just don't, I don't feel con- like I'll talk about harm reduction as a as a model, as a model of like, you know, that can be useful to people who use drugs, but I do not affiliate myself with harm reduction as a harm reductionist. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. I agree with you. It has been whitewashed. Um, yeah. You know, last year, I think, was the first time the federal government ever used the terms harm reduction to describe drug policy, <laughs> which is yeah. great. You know, I mean, finally, <laughs> they are catching up to something that is decades old. It's <laughs> but, you know, at least it's sort of moving in the right direction. I, I, I am 
it's a little bit better at the federal response. But then Biden comes out over and over again recently talking about wanting to fund more of the police and, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. throwing more money at courts and jails and stuff like that. And it's like, I don't have a problem with people that use the term harm reduction or even identify as a harm reductionist. But this is a term now that is coming out of one side of Biden's mouth, harm reduction, and the other side is the drug war that he helped lock them up. Bill. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. So it's frustrating and you're right, it is whitewash and I think I guess you gotta sometimes reclaim the terminology when that happens. Yeah, it's it, it's just gotten to that point where like I am very clear and that I am a drug user, human rights activist, um and I utilize harm reduction, the harm reduction model. Um and it's important because I think that within the harm reduction world, when you get to a certain kind of like place in, in your career or, or in your standing and within the movement, you forget about the marginalized folks on the ground that are still getting arrested for using drugs, that are still getting their children taken away for using drugs, that are not able to, that are still homeless, experiencing homelessness for using drugs. Like you forget about those, you forget about us. Right. And so how are you connected then? And how are you able to, to advocate or, you know, do any type of activism around drug users if, if you don't know what they're going through? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, is there anything else that people should know about on this topic? Um, you know, I kind of wanted to, might be a little outside of what we're talking about, but I think people should, you know, use some good online security uh, when they're, you know, researching, um Mm-hmm. topics about abortion um or texting people you should mm-hmm. use an app like signal or session Signal, yeah yeah i mean that's just sort of i mean that's technical harm reduction yeah just right? I, I would say treat it as if like you were buying drugs right yeah treat it yeah exactly it's the same way fucking scary that you have to treat reproductive health as like you're buying drugs now like mm-hmm. I, i'm yep. i'm not a woman i don't have a uterus so it's hard for me to imagine sometimes that like there'd be an organ in my body that i have to think about as like being illegal or more regulated than a lot of other things. Yeah. I mean, basically that, that is my advice. Treat it as if you were buying drugs because that is what you're doing now. Do you have any other advice for people that are, you know, sort of navigating this new landscape and. Oh man, I would say to join a movement, find a, find a a union that you're comfortable with, that you feel comfortable with um, and, and just join it. Right. Um, you know, no offense to the to the rooms and to the NA and AA folks out there, but like when when you come into a drug user movement, like you are at home. You are not displaced if you're using drugs. You are not displaced if you're on um, methadone or MATs. Like you actually are 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 uh, creating a new family, a new world where you are safe and you are loved and you are you know accepted for who you are. Um, uh, the Urban Survivors Union, every Tuesday at nine o'clock, we have a national call. Um, please just come and, and just hear, hear us out on the call. It's at 9 p.m. at night and it's Urban Survivors Union. If you get the app, go to meeting, then definitely go um, search for Urban Survivors Union. And, and it's a Tuesday call at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Great. Yeah, we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well so that people can check that out. I, I've been on a couple of these calls and they're great. Yeah, you, people should go to them. Yeah, yeah, I'm facilitating the one this coming Tuesday, so I'm looking forward to it. So, Dinah, where can people find you online? 
So Twitter is Dinah Ortiz 4 and my Facebook is Dinah Ortiz. So simple as that. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's depressing the era we're kind of living through, but I think it has to get better. I mean, well, I hope it gets better. As long as I'm alive and I have breath to fight, I am going to keep fighting to make it a better world for, uh, for drug users. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and, and everything. Um, I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Troy. Take care. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Narcomedia. Co-hosted and co-produced by Zachary Siegel, Troy Farah, Christopher Moraff, and Aaron Ferguson. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can find out more at narcocast.com and support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. We are excited to announce that a portion of the proceeds from the show will now go toward the Urban Survivors Union, which is the National Drug Users Union, a group of directly impacted advocates for drug user health in America. This is the way social change happens from the ground up, and we are so excited to support this group that is doing such important work to fight stigma against people who use drugs. If you're a patron, you also get free stickers which are personally mailed to you. You can also request a shout-out on the show. And now, patrons can even get 30% off of merch in our new store, which is at narcocast.myshopify.com. We have t-shirts and coffee mugs, one that says, there are drugs in here, which is awesome. More stuff will be added soon. As always... We are so grateful to the folks that make this show possible. A little goes a long way, so thanks for making Narcotica happen. We're ad-free, and we want to keep it that way. If Patreon just isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast, advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. You can also rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Glassboy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, alias Nomad1, drug-using producer. Well, I guess that's all. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Until next time.